Proverbs 14, verse 1, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. It's been said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. It's also been said, a woman's place is in the home. In addition, it's been said, short is the life of the pastor who would dare teach this verse. (laughs) You know, in today's world, what's remarkable to me is that this verse, this verse has got to rank among one of the most politically incorrect verses in the Bible. Because in essence, it is saying that a woman's place is in the home, that the wise woman knows that she is to focus on building up her house. And yet, it's ironic that any scripture might even be called politically incorrect. Sad, really, that someone could read a verse out of God's holy word and say that doesn't really fit with our culture today. That's a little archaic or arcane. That's, that's a past tense type of a thing. And yet there are many people today who would contend such things. Many people who say certain biblical statements oh, really don't belong to today. They're incompatible with our modern informed culture, to which I reply, when God's word becomes incompatible with culture, culture needs to change. Biblically speaking, Proverbs 14.1 is not alone in stating that a woman's highest priority, the highest priority of a woman of God, is the management of her home. Now, because I'm an equal opportunity offender, I'm going to save this verse for Sunday. And we're actually going to come back and see what else the Word of God has to say about what I'm calling the the, uh, title of this teaching, A Woman's Place, or the one that got me kicked out, whichever you want to call it. (laughs) Proverbs 14, verse 2, let's continue on. Now, let me say this about the rest of the chapter. What's interesting in Proverbs 14 is Solomon, the Holy Spirit really, deepens the divide. In this chapter, you're going to see even more so, and as we continue through Proverbs, the divide gets deeper and deeper between wisdom and foolishness. Between the righteous and the wicked. There's just not room for straddling the fence. Eventually, you're going to fall into the divide. And it gets very deep in this passage as Solomon continues on. Axioms of wisdom, Proverbs, each one. But all together, you see this divide deepening and deepening. In fact, these first three verses all together kind of express that. As the wise woman builds her house, the foolish tears it down with her own hands. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is devious in his ways despises him. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. And so the key to integrity, to walking upright, and with integrity in our world, is the fear of the Lord. And we've talked about that before in Proverbs. The key to integrity is the fear of the Lord, not the coercion of culture. The fear of the Lord. That my concern is with Him, not with the world around us. It's not with placating or appeasing those who would disagree with the Lord, it is to fear the Lord and the Lord first and foremost. On the other hand, the devious don't fear the Lord. They despise the Lord. Listen to this again. He who is devious in his ways despises him. What exactly does that mean? Well, the word devious here is luths in the Hebrew. You could just say luther, and it would probably work well. 
Lutz means literally to be lost from view. To be devious is to be lost from view or, or to think that you're lost from view. And so the reason why the devious person despises the Lord is because they actually believe they can get lost from His view. That they can hide in the shadows. That they can go about their business apart from the awareness of God and it's Adam and Eve all over. After eating the fruit, they thought that fig leaves could cover their sin. They grab what they can. They wrap up. They try to cover their nakedness. And we're told in Genesis 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And that's this verse. That's verse 2. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. That was Adam before. Walking with the Lord in the garden in the cool of the day. They would walk together. But once sin happens and comes into the picture, now... He who is devious in his ways despises the Lord. Now Adam and Eve are trying to cover up. Now they think they might be able to be lost from His view. A life of integrity never attempts to be lost from the view of the Lord, but to walk with Him as in the garden, in the cool of the day. And John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says He abides in Him ought Himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. I'm in Christ. How do you know? You walk like Jesus did. You walk with Jesus, and as the upright, you fear the Lord. Verse 3, In the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect them. Rarely do we regret the things that we don't say. Most often, we regret the things we do say and wish that we could somehow pull them back. You know, the words get out there, you're like, oh, why am I saying this? I'll tell you why we say it. And it's the blurting that causes the hurting. I made that one up. (laughs) Why do we do it? If we know that so many words and, and getting that word in, if we know before the word comes out, as often we do, that it's going to hurt someone or it's going to strike someone or it's going to be hard or caustic, why do we let it out? Verse 3 tells us at the beginning, in the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back. Now it says back, but the word is not back. The word is in the Hebrew pride. Pride. Pride is the problem. Pride is the problem. Now, when we hear the word pride, oftentimes we think of haughtiness. Someone who's puffed up. Someone who's self-righteousness or self-righteous. That's a that's a prideful person. Not necessarily. The truth is, I think if we're all being honest with ourselves, we all struggle with pride. Pride is at the root of our sin nature. When a child talks back to a parent, the problem is pride. When a spouse has to get the last word in, (laughs) pride is the problem. When a Christian argues the gospel rather than sharing the gospel, pride is the problem. I want to win the argument. I want to come off with the last word proving what I know to be the truth. And so so pride creeps in, even into witnessing. The contrast that the Spirit gives us here is the wisdom of quietness. We talked about it on Sunday. Gentle restraint. 
being able to bring the gospel with, with literally gentle restraint, speaking quietly, knowing when to stop talking. Now, ladies, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, and we are going to look at this Sunday morning, goes along with verse 1 of Proverbs 14. Paul writes, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. You don't have to raise your hands, but you might ask yourself, does this bother me? Does this bother? I, I have talked to many women over the years who have been bothered, bugged by this verse. Women who have said, Paul had to have at least a little chauvinism in him to write some of what he wrote. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Submissiveness. May I gently suggest that if that bothers you, the issue is pride. I don't want to learn in submission. I don't want to be quiet. I want to give my opinion. Pride is the issue. There, there is greater wisdom, however. Listen to this. There is greater wisdom in silent reception than there is in bold self-assertion. The wise are those who know when to hold their tongue. The wise are those who know when to quietly listen and receive instruction. And by the way, it goes for men just as well as for women. Paul says to the Thessalonican church, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. He's talking to men and women there. Don't be loudmouths. There's no wisdom in that. Blurting out everything that you think you know. Ladies and gentlemen, guard your lips. And if you're going to be bold in any speech, man, be bold with the gospel. Let that be something you speak boldly. Everything else, speak with gentle restraint. Verse 4. I like this verse. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean. (laughs) But much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. Now the ox is the picture of industry. And strength, especially in Solomon's day, the ox would be used to carry someone into town just as well as to plow the field. So it was both the SUV and the tractor of the day. The ox. And the ox was a a picture, again, of, of work, of a good work ethic. We know Solomon has a good work ethic. We know he wants to pass this along to his sons. But a clean manger... A clean manger without an ox is a great description of faith without works. Faith without works. James chapter 2, verse 17, faith if it has no works is dead by itself. James goes on to say, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So is an ox-free manger. It's useless. It doesn't make sense. Now, granted, there is a problem with having an ox in the manger, having an ox in the stable or the barn. Cow pies. Bowl cookies. You know? Pasture patties. I have wondered over the last seven and a half years, I've wondered sometimes what Barb and Rod's life would have been like had they not opened this barn to the oxen. I wonder what it would have been like if they had just chosen to keep this barn nice and clean. No church stuff. No human problems. And trust me, in seven and a half years, there have been plenty of meadow muffins left behind here. Here's the thing. And I'm saying all this for a point. 
to get the job done, the manger will be messy. To accomplish ministry in a church fellowship is going to involve a mess. And someone's got to clean that up. You can't have a church that is freeze-dried and clean and polished and perfect. It doesn't exist on this planet. I've shared before, if you think it does, go to that church, but once you get there, you're going to mess it up. Because we all still bring our humanity into it. And so, the working out of faith is a messy process. Listen to this. James goes on in James 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? He acted, but it was a messy action. Think about it. What if God had allowed him to go through with the sacrifice of his son Isaac? As Abraham assumed he would. Abraham assumed he was going to kill his son, the Bible tells us, and God was going to resurrect him. So in Abraham's faith mindset, the death was going to happen. He was going to experience plunging the knife into the heart of his son and offering him up as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. This is what Abraham's assuming. What a mess! How is he going to go home and explain the death of laughter to Sarah? Faith is messy business. Yes, God stopped him, stayed his hand. But Abraham didn't know that. He didn't know that's what would go on. And James said, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Because Abraham was willing to go all the way with it, faith grew. Because we as a fellowship are willing to roll up our sleeves and deal with the messes that are inherent in any church body, guess what? Faith is perfected. Faith is strengthened. So the messes, while none of us enjoy them, are part of the procedure. They are part of the deal. To get the job done, the manger must be messy. But in that mess, faith grows. Manure does help grow things, doesn't it? That's the deal. And we're going to step in it. We already have. We will continue to. But better to have a working barn rather than a nice, clean, spotless barn that lacks the revenue of faith. Verse 5. A trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. A false witness. Solomon is tapping into the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. When the Lord spoke those words to Moses, he knew that the death of his son would be caused by a false witness. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What does a false witness do? We've talked about this before. A false witness doesn't just lie. A false witness takes the truth and twists it slightly. Bends it just a bit. And no one knows this better than Jesus. We're told in Matthew 26.59 that the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. They didn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward. And they said, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Here's the question. Did Jesus say what they claimed he did? Yes, he did. Those are his exact words. Destroy this temple and I will build it up again in three days. The false witness, though, pointed the direction to the temple 
when you know the reality was, the context was, Jesus was talking about the resurrection of his own body. John chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 is where that takes place. Jesus is the faithful and true witness, Revelation 3.14. Never the false witness. He never lies, never misrepresents or shades the truth, and that's good news because it means we can trust Him completely. Verse 6. A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge is easy to one who has understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. Same theme here. Here's the thing. If I am honestly seeking truth, I'll find it. No question. As a matter of fact, I'll go further than that. Truth is easy to find in this world. God is easy to find in this world if you are really, truly, honestly looking for Him. If you're looking to sidestep Him, you're not going to find Him. If you're looking to change truth or relativize truth, then it's going to be a little difficult to see or understand the truth. But if I'm looking for it, honestly seeking the Lord, I will find Him. problem is, far too many people when they come to God, they're trying to justify wrong behavior. When they look at the truth of the Bible or, or Christianity, they, they have a personal agenda they're trying to prove. Or worse, they just want to undermine Jesus with endless controversy and questions. And that kind of mentality will not find knowledge. The knowledge of Jesus that leads to salvation. Paul talks about these people in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. He says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited, he understands nothing, he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says this type of person is always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. By the way, in 2 Timothy, Paul's talking about women. In 1 Timothy, he's talking about men constantly raising these controversial questions and pushing the truth aside. 2 Timothy, he's talking about the context there is women who are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Always questioning, but not coming to that settled place. I got it. I got to share this with you. The Seattle Times front page Monday morning. Atheists counter prediction with rapture party. Have you heard about this? The way Seattle atheist Paul Case sees it, holding a rapture party on Saturday, the date a Christian radio broadcaster who's getting national attention says the rapture is supposed to happen, is a can't lose proposition. If the rapture indeed occurs and Christians worldwide are transported to heaven, quote, we know as atheists we're not going, said Case, one of several people organizing the Saturday party in Tacoma. It's one of several such gatherings being organized by atheist groups nationwide. If this occurs, he says, it's a good thing for us. We get the real estate and cheap cars, and we won't have to worry about separation of church and state. On the other hand, if the rapture doesn't happen, hey, it's another egg in the face of those who say the end times will come, so it's a win-win for us, Case says. Wow. 
The prediction prompting the parties comes from Harold Camping, an 89-year-old civil engineer by training. Camping heads family radio, also known as family stations, all over. He has 66 different stations. Looking at biblical passages, and here it gets frustrating for me. Looking at biblical passages and using mathematical calculations, Camping says he's pinpointed the date of the rapture to May 21st. Problem number one. We're not supposed to know the day or the hour. In fact, the Bible says we will not know the day and the hour. Now, you all know how I stand on this. I believe we're in the end times, last days, last of the last days, end of the end times. And I believe Jesus' coming could be any time. In fact, honestly, Saturday night's a little late for me. (laughs) But we cannot pinpoint the date, and yet this guy's doing that. So there's there's a, a problem right there. Those left on earth will then go through five months of horror and chaos beyond description. Five months. Well, if you've read Revelation, you know it's seven years, not five months. Before the world ends on, uh, let's see, the world finally ends on October 21st, according to Family Radio's website. Thomas Holt, a volunteer with Family Radio, calls those who poke fun at camping's predictions scoffers, referring to 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, saying you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming that he promised? But Camping's prediction is not widely accepted. Despite his beliefs being featured on billboards and in various cities and in uh, media stores nationwide. For, uh, or media stories. For many Christians, end of the world scenarios aren't something they give much attention to. Which I think is sad. I think we need to be alert and aware. And the many who do, of the many who do, there have been concerns raised that Camping's prediction contradicts Scripture, which I just raised that concern. There are a long line of brilliant people who through intricate calculations have made predictions about the end of the world, said Pastor Joseph Futon of Cedar Park Assembly of God down in Bothell. Unfortunately, they have overlooked the obvious words of Jesus. You don't know the day or the hour of such events. But it's atheists in particular who appear to be poking the most fun. In Tacoma, producers of the weekly radio show Ask an Atheist are sponsoring the local rapture party. Rapture party. This is for Saturday night, so if you're not doing anything. (laughs) Their slogan, quote, Countdown to backpedaling. The end is nah. While Seattle atheists aren't hosting a party that night, they are collecting money for humanitarian relief should the rapture occur. The end of the world is, quote, obviously disconcerting news, and we thought we'd lend a hand, the group says on its rapture relief website. While the rest of the world is tortured in this terrible apocalypse, elite squads of godless heathens will help bring about bring people out of the rubble and rebuild their lives. If the end times don't happen as predicted, Seattle Atheist says the money raised will go to Camp Quest, which teaches children critical thinking skills. I'll tell you more about Camp Quest in a few minutes. Hold to Family Radio for one has no doubt the rapture will occur Saturday. The Bible clearly predicts it will, he says. And so here we sit listening to people make predictions that the Bible says you can't make listening to other people make fun of this whole idea that Jesus is coming back. Joking about it, saying, hey, a bunch of godless heathens will help rebuild the world after you people, you know, if it does happen, then hey, we'll be here. Having no idea what the Bible says and and what is truly coming. Solomon says in these verses, knowledge is easy to the one who has understanding. 
In other words, hard facts are never the issue. A heart of faith is the issue. The hard facts are there, gang. If you want to know God, the hard facts are there. The truth, the proof, it is there. But God's looking for faith. And if there's not faith in the heart, though the truth is standing right in front of you, you will not see it. It's hard to get past the self. Verse 9 says, Fools mock at sin, as we just read. But among the upright, there is goodwill. Interesting. Fools mock at sin. Among the upright, there is goodwill. And so our attitude towards Seattle atheists needs to be one of grace and goodwill and compassion and, I would say, prayer. People like this Paul Case, we need to be praying for him because he has no idea what he's saying. So we need grace in the matter, but it still says fools mock at sin. The word sin there is literally guilt, and I find that interesting. Fools mock at guilt, or literally the guilt offering. Fools mock the guilt offering. Isn't it amazing how hard this world works to try and get rid of guilt? You know? There's a couple of ways people go about this. They either can address it, or they can try to alleviate it. But understand, guilt has its place. Guilt has its purpose in our Christian lives. There's a reason for guilt. It's that silent alarm that begins to go off, either when we're being tempted or when we have sinned. It's that alarm. It's uncomfortable. No one likes the way it feels. In fact, guilt's a lot like physical pain. No one likes pain. No one wants pain. But I praise God for pain when I'm about to put my hand in the fire. I'm thankful for pain when I've twisted my ankle and I need to be careful and not walk on it so it can heal. Pain is a good thing, right? It's helpful. God created us to experience pain that we might be alerted to things that would be harmful to our bodies. In the same way, God created us with guilt that we might be alerted to things that are harmful to our soul and spirit. But people can either address guilt, and we address it by coming to the Lord, confessing sin, addressing it as it is, deal with it, or they can alleviate guilt, drugs, alcohol, pleasure, hedonism, you know, anything to take your mind off of it. Problem is, as with pain, if we try to just alleviate guilt, we will cause nerve damage. When you try to just alleviate pain, physical pain, and you're taking drug after drug after drug to keep the pain down, eventually eventually the, the nerve endings start to wear thin. Eventually you need more and more of the painkiller to keep the pain down. When people try to alleviate guilt without dealing with it, they end up, Paul says, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. 1 Timothy 4.2 Fools mock guilt. Fools mock sin. The heart, verse 10, knows its own bitterness. And a stranger does not share its joy. That's an interesting verse. And very true. The heart is a hidden thing. It doesn't matter how well you might know me, there are things in my heart you'll never know. Even with my own wife, who knows me better than anyone on earth, there are things that happen in my heart she will never know. There are joys I feel that I can't explain. There are things that I would hide that she wouldn't understand. And it's true, the heart is an unknowable thing. It's hidden. And by the way, what he says in verse 10, man, that's the root of existentialism. Existentialism, the philosophy of aloneness. 
and ridiculousness. The universe is ridiculous, nothing makes any sense, and at the end of all things, each one of us are abjectly and completely alone. Existentialism teaches no one on earth can completely know my heart. And you know what? That's true to a point. But there is one in heaven who does completely know your heart. We're told in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, that Jesus had to be make, made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since He Himself was tempted, and that which He has suffered, He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4.15, We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows what you're going through in a way, in a way that I believe is far deeper than the generic human condition. You know, let's say I struggled with alcoholism and, and was healed of that and was talking to someone struggling with alcoholism, I could understand their alcoholism from the perspective of the human condition. Jesus understands far greater. Jesus, as both our high priest and our sacrifice, gets both sides of the deal. Jesus knows the heart in ways that no other single human being, not even your spouse, could understand or know. He knows you. No one will ever fully understand each of our hearts the way Jesus does. And that, that is a comforting thought. There are times when I want to express myself to somebody and I don't know of anyone who would truly understand what I'm thinking or feeling. Jesus does. He gets it. Verse 11, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Now this is more than just a contrast of endings here. It goes to the actual state of mind of those who are wicked and those who are upright. What do you mean? Well, notice what he says again. The house of the wicked will be destroyed. The tent of the upright will flourish. Houses are permanent dwellings. You build houses assuming you're going to live in it a long time. A tent, you pitch because you know in the morning you may have to pull it up and head on. It's a completely different perspective. The wicked are looking for permanence here and now. The righteous or the upright are looking for permanence there and then. Ask Abraham. You know, Abraham never built a house in all of his years and with all his wealth. And he was a wealthy man. He lived his entire life in a tent. All his life. you got to ask why. Why didn't he stop to build a home? There in the promised land, God said, I want you to stand on these mountains, Abraham, there in the hills of Judea. Look out across all this. Look out from Hebron. Look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Look everywhere. I'm giving it to you. It's all yours. Great. I'd be laying the foundation the next day, pulling out house plans, preparing to get permanent there in the place. Abraham was very wealthy. Servants and flocks and herds. He had the money. He could have built a mansion. He could have... Why stop there? Build a city, Abraham. Build a state. Build a nation. And what did he do? He bought one piece of property, the cave of Machpelah, so he could bury himself and his family. That's it. Little field. Didn't build anything on it. Just bought the cave so he could be buried there. 
The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 11.9, By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as, a, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham had the right idea. He was a sojourner. So are you. So am I. We're sojourners here. We're not home builders. We're tent dwellers. Because we recognize this world is not our home. We're going to a much better place. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.1, We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul gets it. Abraham got it. Both men, by the way, understood the next verse. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You look for permanence in this world, you will not find it. You pour all of yourself and your resources and your energy into this world. I'll show you a tragic thing. A relative of mine, who's pretty much off the deep end, not someone you know, a distant relative, but I just heard the other day that she had finally cut the whole entire family out of her will because she's giving her her will to the Clean Air Fund. And when asked why she was doing it, her response was, I feel good about that. Okay, you're investing in oxygen that is going to burn anyway. It's not going to do anybody any good. If you want to do somebody some good, give it to me. <laughs> no, I, I, just, I just heard that. How sad that everything you work for literally ends up air. Jesus says in Matthew 7.13, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. It's not the way that we assume that is right. It's not the path that looks appealing. It's the one God calls us down. And oftentimes in our lives, the Lord calls us down a path that looks ugly. A path that looks dark and disconcerting. It's not the way we want to go. And He says, but but I want you to go that way. You know how you know which way to go? You have a piece about it. As you're heading down that narrow, cracked, you know, rooted, rocky road, you know you're supposed to. No one else understands that. It doesn't make sense to the rest of the world, but you know. And so you head down that way because God is calling you that way. Our arrival at the end, gang, it will never be determined by our wisdom, only by His. Jesus says, I am the way. Finish it. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. There's a way that seems right to a man. Jesus says, I am the way. Verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain. And the end of joy may be grief. Yeah, ask John Belushi. Or Chris Farley. Or any number. You know, you can do a Google search. It's interesting. The list of comedians who have committed suicide, died by drugs, given up on life, shrunk away into depression. It's incredible. These are the funny men. I laughed hard at some of the things John Belushi did on Saturday Night Live when I was a kid. I grew up watching that show. Probably shouldn't have, but that's beside the point. I'm older now, more mature. I don't watch it anymore, except on occasion. Chris Farley (laughs) is is another one who, hilarious. By the way, John Belushi and Chris Farley both died at the age of 33. 
Both died of drug overdoses. Both died having offered laughter, momentary laughter to the world, but died in their pain. Often, by the way, the laughter that they, that they offered was mocking sin. And their lifestyles became such a sin lifestyle. It wasn't just mocking anymore. It ate them alive. They died at 33. I think of another who died at 33. Jesus didn't give us momentary laughter. Jesus never mocked sin. He gives ultimate joy and eternal freedom from sin. And Jesus is the way to go. Verse 14, The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. Gang, backsliding is like backwashing. Okay? When you do it, you're just filling up on your own juices. <laughs> Sorry, I know that's disgusting. <laughs> Rick, where, where are you talking about? Metal muffins and things? What's going on with you? Backsliding. you got to get the picture because the biblical picture is actually more disgusting than backwashing a soda or a cup of milk or something. The Bible has this to say about backsliding. God first addresses Israel. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 18. What are you doing on the road to Egypt? I mean, that's ironic right there. What, what, what are you doing on the road to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? What are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? God says, your own wickedness will correct you. And your apostasies will reprove you. Backwash. It's your own stuff. It's now coming right back at you. It's disgusting. He says, Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. Peter put it this way, If after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. And you thought backwash was gross. How many times have you seen a dog do that? It's disgusting. They herb it up and they go right back at it. It's sick. And the Bible says that's what you need to think about with this whole concept, the idea of backsliding. Well, Rick, is backsliding possible? Have you ever done it? Yeah. Right here. You know, backsliding doesn't necessarily mean you've lost your salvation. But it does mean you're, you're drinking your own juices. Backsliding is the ultimate in selfishness because what it says is I don't want to go the way of the Lord. I want to go the way I want to go. I want to go back to me. I want to go back and hang out with my old self. Well, your old self is disgusting and stinking and sin sick. And you want to go back there? The backslidden person. They will have his fill of his own ways. You'll fill up with yourself. You want to go back there? You can have all you want and you're going to be disgusted by it. Or, or... A good man will be satisfied with his. What does that mean? Now here's where it gets interesting. The good man is not full of himself, but he is satisfied in his ways. The things he does. 
the fruit of his lips. The fruit of his own mouth. What was it? Proverbs 13, verse 2. From the fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good. So when the heart is right, the fruit that's coming out of your mouth is good fruit, love, and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. And that's tasty. And that's sweet. So much for backwash. That's good fruit. And that fruit is developed as we go forward rather than heading back. Verse 15, the naive believes everything. But the sensible man considers his steps. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil. But a fool is arrogant and careless. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. The naive inherit foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. I love these verses together, this contrast. It's that contrast and it's that deepening divide I was talking about before between wisdom and foolishness or uprightness and wickedness or in this case, the sensible and the simpleton. The sensible and the simpleton. The word naive there in the Hebrew, it is simpleton. And we even see a further distinction between a fool and a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. I know the world likes to call Christians simpletons. You've probably heard it. How can you believe in that rapture stuff? How silly. How simplistic. How can you believe in God created the world? Oh, it's an easy answer. But it's, it's, it's not scientific. It's not intellectual. And the world goes that way. You know, Seattle atheists and, and rapture party organizers go down that road. In fact... Camp Quest. Seattle Seattle atheists are raising money on their rapture-ready website so that when the rapture happens, they can then care for the world, so they say. Or if the rapture doesn't happen, well, then they'll take all the money they make on their rapture-ready website and they're going to give it to Camp Quest. Well, I wondered, what's Camp Quest? I looked it up. CampQuest.org. Camp Quest is the first residential summer camp in the history of the United States aimed at the children of atheists, free thinkers, humanists, brights, or whatever terms might be applied to those who hold a naturalistic, not a supernatural worldview. The purpose of Camp Quest is to provide children of free thinking parents a residential summer camp dedicated to improving the human condition through rational inquiry, critical and creative thinking, scientific methods, self-respect, ethics, ethics, Can I just ask, based on what? (laughs) If there is no God, who cares about ethics? It truly is every man for himself. You know? If there is no God and all I have is between now and when I die, I'm not going to be hanging out with you all. I'm sorry, I love you, but unless you want to go out and just party your brains out and waste your life into nothingness, I'm not going to hang out with you. Because if there is nothing, then I'm going to live hard for now. I'm going to do everything I can to to live for now and experience hedonism off the charts. That would be Pastor Rick if there was no God. Thank goodness there is. But I'm serious. Why would you want to try and live uprightly or even care about other people unless it served you? Right? Ethics, competency, democracy, free speech, and of course the separation of religion and government. Through our programs, we seek to build a community for free-thinking families, foster curiosity, questioning, and what they call critical thinking, encourage reason and compassion as foundations of an ethical, productive, and fulfilling life, 
Raise awareness of positive contributions made by atheists, agnostics, humanists, freethinkers, and non-theistic people in our society. To promote an open dialogue about metaphysical questions that is marked by challenging each other's ideas, while at the same time treating each other with respect. To demonstrate atheism and humanism as positive, family-friendly world views. Back to Proverbs. The naive believes everything the sensible man considers his steps. The wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but the fool is arrogant and careless. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. A man of evil devices of evil devices is hated, and the naive inherit foolishness. But the sensible are crowned with knowledge. Gang, let me just express to you what I have always believed, and that is the most intelligent thing a person can be in the world is a believer in Jesus Christ. That is intellectual Sharp, clear thinking. There are three words here that depict, in contrast to the simpleton, three words that depict a man or a woman of faith. The first word is considers in verse 15. He considers. The naive believes everything. The sensible man considers his steps. The word considers is bina, understanding in the Hebrew. The believer is seeking to understand what he or she is taught. That's why you're here tonight. That's why your Bibles are open on your laps, because you're seeking to understand. And hopefully, in your mind, everything that I'm teaching and saying, you're going, now is that what the Word of God says? Does that align with truth here? You're praying in your mind, Lord, I want to see the truth, even if Pastor Rick gets it wrong. And if he does, I'll let him know. And I'm good with that. I welcome that. If I'm missing something, you need to let me know. Because I don't want to miss it. He considers, as opposed to Camp Quest that teaches so-called critical thinking to children. What breaks my heart about that is there was a day in, in time in this country's history where the summer camps were by and large Christian. Where it was all about, you know... Vacation Bible schools and, and summer camps for kids. And I think, and I don't, you know, we need to pray about this less, but I, I think that this church needs to be looking into some kind of connection to a summer camp for our kids. Whether it's buying some property somewhere and, and building a camp or getting involved, I don't know. But it's sad to me. There are going to be dozens of kids going to Camp Quest this summer learning how to not believe in God. But the man of faith, the woman of faith, They consider. Secondly, in verse 16, he's cautious. And here's where the path divides between the simpleton, or I would even say the atheistic critical thinker, so-called, and the Christian. The path divides right here. They may all consider what they're taught, but now, verse 16, he's cautious. He's cautious and turns away from evil. The word cautious, yare, which is often used... In a, in a humorous way with Yahweh to be cautious to fear Yahweh, Yahweh, fear the Lord. And a sensible person considers, and they're cautious, they fear, they respect. They're not timid, but they are wary of what's going on in the world. Let me put it this way. A follower of Jesus respects evil as a real threat. He or she respects sin as an actual problem. Respects Satan as a determined enemy. I'm not saying that you give respect to Satan, but you respect the fact that there is a devil and he is active and alive and at work in this world. And we respect that hell is an actual location. 
If you take that away, that caution away, you're open to considering everything. That's fine. Now you're considering everything, but you have no protection against what is true, what is coming on the evil side. He's, he considers, he's cautious, and finally number three, verse 18, he's crowned. Crowned. And the word crowned there is kathar. It means encompassed. He is encompassed with knowledge. The sensible person is encompassed with knowledge because they consider all things and they are cautious with what they are learning. And they end up crowned with knowledge. Not the knowledge that comes from man, but the knowledge that comes through the fear of the Lord. And notice the difference there in verse 18. The fool inherits foolishness. The believer doesn't inherit knowledge. You don't just get knowledge because your parents believed in the Lord at one time. You receive, you develop knowledge and understanding as you are considerate, as you are cautious. It's something that's learned and earned in the walk of faith. It's something you end up owning. Not something that's just passed along, but you own it yourself. It's not something to be lost. Daniel describes this type of person this way. Daniel 12.3 Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And of course you know the verse. You're going to hear this again. In fact, if you come to two days with Timothy, we'll spend some time on this verse. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. The crown. What comes with a crown? Authority does. The moment someone has a crown put on their head, there is an inherent authority to that crown. Look at verse 19. The evil will bow down before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. My friends, we are crowned with Christ-like authority right now. We will be crowned with authority in the coming kingdom, but right now you have been crowned with Christ-like authority in the knowledge of God. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. I am sending you. I am crowning each of you with the authority to go in my name. Wow! Have you ever thought about that? How awesome the Great Commission is? It's not just a statement. It's an offering of Jesus to you and to me to be involved in what He's doing. To carry His message. To be given ambassadorial positions in the kingdom to take the message of Christ. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey, to observe all that He has commanded us. And lo, He says, I'm with you always. We have a crown. Now, a crown of authority to bring the Gospel into this world. And Christian faith gang, it is not the way of the simpleton. It is the way of the sensible. It is considerate. It is cautious. And it is crowned with godly authority. Now, the next two verses are interesting to me because they stand in contrast one to the other. Verse 20 is a statement of how things are. Verse 21 is a statement of the way things should be. Verse 20, the poor is hated even by his neighbor. Those who love the rich are many. That's the way it is. That's a true enough statement. Poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. The way it is. Verse 21, He who despises his neighbor, however, we might add, sins. But happy is he who is gracious to the poor. That's the way it should be. The way it is, 
and the way it should be. A lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How does it read to you? Now this guy must have been uh, privy to another conversation with Jesus, because he quotes Jesus who quoted Deuteronomy. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Good job. Do this and you will live. Well, seeking to justify himself, the lawyer said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus proceeds to define his neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You probably know it well. He lays out this beautiful parabolic definition. And you know who the neighbor is? It's not just the people that you meet when you're walking down the street. Sesame Street. According to Jesus, your neighbor, listen, your neighbor is the person who can't give anything back to you. That's your neighbor. The person for whom when you do something cannot return it, cannot pay you back, cannot offer to you any help or any support or anything good, your neighbor, according to the story of the Good Samaritan, is the guy who's beaten up, bleeding, moneyless, penniless, robbed, dying on the road. That's your neighbor. And you can help them or not. But if you help them, guess what? You're not getting anything out of it. They're not paying you back. They don't even know who you are. That's your neighbor. And so the Spirit says, happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Well, why? Why is that? Because that's not the way the world thinks. The world thinks, I'll, I'll give to you, I'll scratch your back, but you got to scratch mine. i got to get something out of this, right? So why is it that happy is he who is gracious to the poor? Because in that graciousness, we imitate our Father. When we do things for people who can do nothing for us, we're like God. We're acting like Jesus, who has been and always is gracious to us. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. 2 Timothy, or 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Happy is He who is gracious to the poor. Verse 22. Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. In other words, devise evil and you will get lost. Devise good and you will see Jesus. Huh? Devise good and you'll see Jesus. Where? Where in verse 22 is Jesus? Any guesses? Kindness and truth. The word kindness is loving kindness, chesed. It is the Old Testament word for grace. Jesus is right there. Grace and truth. And with grace and truth will be to those who devise good. If you want to experience more Jesus, plot good. Plan mercy. Devise kindness. And act on it. And you will know Jesus more because, John 1.17, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. We keep on saying this, don't we? Isn't it marvelous? I told you I was going to point it out every time I run across it. Grace and truth. It is all over the Old Testament. 
And John, knowing that by the Spirit, when he writes John, the, the Gospel in, in 117, he pulls off of that. He says, grace and truth are realized through Jesus. All of this grace and truth has been talked about over the years. It is Jesus. It's seen in Jesus. He connects it to Jesus because Jesus exemplifies grace and truth. Jesus was always devising ways to be good. In Acts chapter 10, I believe it is, that Peter says, what did Jesus do? He was always going about doing good. He was going around doing good things. That marked the character, the, the, the attitude of Jesus Christ. And the more we're that way, the more we are like Him. Verse 23, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of fools is foolishness. Remember the ox in the barn, as we talked about. If you think you can profit without effort, that is bull cookies right there. In fact, you won't even get that if you're not willing to put effort into something. And I, you know, I, I call this, Cheryl knows this phrase, I call it my good tired. My good tired. How are you doing? I'm exhausted, but I'm good tired. You know, I feel that way often on Sundays, end of the day, and, and not when it just ends at, at, at 2 o'clock or so whenever we finish the last service, but when the day kind of rolls on and, and I'm, I'm with people, I'm talking, I'm sharing, and I'm, and I'm involved, and I get home and it's 5, 6, 7 o'clock at night, and I sit down for the first time and, and I, my knees are just kind of going, you know, they're kind of humming, and, and I'm just a little weary, and how's your day, honey? Good tired. Good time. I love days like that. Don't you love a day where you, you, at the end of the day, before your head hits the pillow, you feel like, wow, something was done that was good today. I accomplished something today. I didn't just waste it. I didn't just sit and watch TV all day. The drool coming down. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I've had days like that too. In fact, Cheryl and I fool ourselves. We got into this pattern. I don't know if I shared this. I, I thought about it recently. We got into this pattern with Mother's Day and Father's Day where we say, those are our days to do nothing. Just to sit around. The spouse takes care of the kids. And, and so on Mother's Day, Cheryl gets to sit. And on Father's Day, I don't have to do anything. You know what I'm thinking for this Father's Day? I want to be busy. Because last Father's Day, by the time I went to bed, I was just like, oh, what a boring day. I did nothing. You know? I just, I just rotted a little more. That's all I did. In labor, there is... There is profit. And so roll up your sleeves. There is a wealth of satisfaction at the end of a good day. And, and listen, that doesn't mean we don't pursue resting in Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're not working hard and resting. You know, we Sabbath in our spirits with Christ, but we roll up our sleeves and we get to the work at hand for His sake. Verse 25, a great verse to follow this, a truthful witness saves literally souls. The word is souls there. A truthful witness saves souls, but he who utters lies is treacherous. And we just talked about this on Sunday. A truthful witness saves souls. How many souls will you be responsible for seeing saved in your lifetime? That's a fair question to ask. One? Hey, that's great. That's wonderful. God uses you in your existence on this little planet in this short amount of time to save another person. Hallelujah. Twelve? Wonderful. A hundred? Fantastic. Keep going. How many people will God use you to usher into His kingdom? Remember this. It doesn't depend on you. Remember, with God, and we talked about this Sunday, if you didn't hear it, you need to listen to this teaching. 
With God, no spoken word is without power. You speak the gospel, there is inherent power in the gospel message if you will simply speak it. So speak it out boldly. Speak it out confidently. Verse 26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. And His children will have a refuge. Now that may mean God's children or it may mean the children of the man who fears the Lord, the woman who fears the Lord. But you fear the Lord either way. Verse 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Now there's a whole teaching here, but I'm just going to sum it up like this. Fear the Lord and you will fear nothing else. Don't fear the Lord and you'll fear everything else. And it's that simple. When we fear the Lord, what else is there to be afraid of? But if you don't have your fear in the Lord, there is everything. The call that comes from the doctor, terrifying. You know? Your daughter on the road driving your car, horrifying. I mean that personally. I was reaching for an example, Hannah. No, it's fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and you've got nothing else to be afraid of. Now, now we're down to the end here. And I need you to keep a sharp ear out. Keep it open as we close out the chapter. There's something wonderful here. Verse 28, In a multitude of people is a king's glory, but in the dearth of a people is a prince's ruin. Okay, Solomon knows this. Solomon experienced it himself. In fact, there's something prophetic even in his, in his writing this because Solomon knew firsthand his glory was in the sheer numbers of Israel. That was Israel, the height of her existence. More people in Israel than any other time before or in any other time after. The land was filled with the people. And when the people gathered and Solomon stepped out on the dais before them, you know, at the, at the dedication of the temple, masses thronged Jerusalem. Wow! That is an amazing thing. The glory of a king. That multitude of people surrounding him. But the dearth of a people is a prince's ruin. What happened to Rehoboam? kingdom split. And so Prince Rehoboam had a dearth of people. And suddenly the kingdom wasn't half what it was under Solomon. And it would just go downhill from there. You know the story of the kings. We went through all of that. But something greater than Solomon is here. Verse 29, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. The wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding, but in the hearts of fools it is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a, a disgrace to any people. In verse 35, the king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. Now, you can go back to each of these eight Proverbs, and you can apply them personally. But taken together, they are best applied not personally, but as a person. That is, we have a picture of Jesus in these eight verses. I mean, speaks of Jesus in a wonderful way as we see wisdom exemplified in the life of our King. Go back to verse 28. In a multitude of people is a King's glory. King Jesus, surrounded by a multitude. Can you imagine? 
Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, John says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John says in another place, Revelation 7 verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. We have this wonderful picture of the King in His glory. And he's surrounded by throngs, masses. And you know, when you feel like Christianity is a, is a minority in this world, it's going to be the majority in heaven. In fact, it's going to be all there is. It's not even going to be a minority. It's just everywhere you look. Look, Christian, 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 Jew, Christian, Christian, Jew, same thing. Christian, Christian. I mean, you know, all around the throne, around Jesus, the King, His glory is the multitude of, of people. By contrast, by contrast, in the dearth of a people is a prince's ruin. Daniel calls Antichrist the prince who is to come. The coming prince. And his ruin will be a dearth of people at the end of the tribulation. He will not win all the souls of mankind. He will go down and go down hard. Verse 28. So we start off, and verse 28 is kind of the verse that caught my attention, because we start off with the king's glory here, a view to the end. But then we backpedal a bit. Verse 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. Verse 30, a tranquil heart is life to the body. Verse 31, he who is gracious to the needy honors him. It's Jesus. And it describes Jesus beautifully in his ministry. Slow to anger. We, we talked about how Jesus, in clearing the temple, was not flying off the handle, was not out of control. He was thoughtful. He was measured. He was purposeful. Slow to anger. In fact, in John 2.15, which is at the beginning of his public ministry, We're told Jesus made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. But don't get the wrong picture. This is not a mad Messiah or a crazed Christ. Okay? Jesus is careful even in what he's doing. Listen to verse 16 of John chapter 2. To those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now, if he was flailing out of control, he would have been tossing cages of doves out the windows of the temple, you know? Just kicking them off and the cages and the doves flopping around, trying to get out of his way as, as this mad Messiah was losing control, losing his temper. No. No. He went after those he needed to go after, but when it came to the doves, he said, get these out of here. <laughs> it doesn't harm a feather on their backs. It's amazing to me. Slow to anger. A tranquil heart, verse 30, is life to the body. Boy, if anybody had a tranquil heart, it's Jesus. By the way, on this verse, it's better to be faithful than to be flashy. Over time, the reason why he says passion is rottenness to the bones, it's okay to be passionate about Christ, passionate about things, but that word passion, zeal, ultimately, if you're, if you're always looking for the buzz of stuff, it's just going to wear you out. It's too much. You cannot maintain the spiritual high constantly 24-7. Oh, I'm in the Lord and this is just great. And after a while, you're just exhausted. And God says, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for faithfulness. I'm looking for long-term walking with me. Just being with me. 
There are times I'm with my kids and we're riding roller coasters at Disneyland and laughing our heads off and it's passionate, wild fun. And there are other times where we're sitting and we're reading Miss Susie, you know, little children's book. Or we're just watching TV or eating dinner and no one's even talking. Those times. Because we're a family. It's walking it out over time. And it's remarkable to note how Jesus moved in his life. What characterizes him is not a zealot. Simon was the zealot. Jesus was not. What's amazing to me is he knew his time was limited. Jesus knew he had three years of ministry. More than anybody else, he knew, looking down the road, exactly what the time was. John tells us, John 13, he knew the time. He was completely aware of it. Three years to change the world. That blows my mind. So how did Jesus do it? Find the highest pinnacle of the temple, stand up there, jump off, and do something flashy and amazing? (laughs) That's what Satan told him to do. What did he do instead? He stayed mostly up in the Galilee. He traveled mostly between three small towns. He gathered 12 interesting fellows. And he taught. And he healed. And he fed. He moved in tranquility. Never rushed. Never hurry. Jesus! Jesus! Lazarus is sick! Come quickly! John 11.5 tells us Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Jesus, fire up the car, man! Get to Bethany! What are you doing? What? Why didn't he hot-foot it out of town and get there as quick as possible? Well, he tells us why. John 11.4 When Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by it. Notice that. He doesn't say this sickness will not kill Lazarus. He said it won't end in death. What his apostles could not have realized is what Jesus knew. Oh, Lazarus is going to die. It's just not going to end there. (laughs) And so he waited. Because Jesus was never rushed. We talked about this today, less than that. You know, in, in ministry, it's we can be firefighters or we can be pastors. I don't want to be a firefighter. It's exhausting. Every little problem. And I hear about a lot of stuff. And I can't even tell you how often I get a phone call. Well, did you know so-and-so did this or said this or this is going on? And I'll tell you what, if I responded to all that stuff, I'd be dead right now. Putting out a fire here, taking care of that there. I wasn't, you know, focusing on the two of you as the fire. You're cool. You're good. But trying to fix things everywhere you go. And Jesus never did that. He just didn't do that. He moved purposefully, quietly. Slow and steady wins the race. Verse 31 describes him as well. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. Hmm. But he who is gracious to the needy honors him. I just love that. This is Jesus. Gracious to the needy. How many stories of of blind men or lepers or bleeding women do we have to hear before we recognize Jesus was always concerned about the most needy? Matthew 9.36 Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, slow to anger, tranquil of heart, Gracious to the needy. Look at verse 32. But, last part of verse 32, the righteous has a refuge when he dies. So this righteous, perfect man walked among us, did these things, and then he died. But he had a refuge. 
We talked about that refuge a few weeks back on Easter, didn't we? The refuge of the righteous. The refuge of the righteous. The, the essential component of Jesus' resurrection was His righteousness. The Bible tells us, raised by Father, raised by the Spirit, and Jesus raised by Himself. But the power, the component there that was necessary for the raising of Jesus was righteousness. Righteousness can't be killed. Can't stay dead. And because Jesus was fully righteous, He resurrected. He couldn't stay dead. Proverbs 10, verse 2, righteousness delivers from death. Verse 33 tells us then wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding. But in the heart of fools it is made known. In other words, in the heart of fools they learn it the hard way. Fools learn wisdom the hard way. But for Jesus, wisdom was just there. It was just who He is. In His heart. I mean, you think Solomon was wise in his rule? Even as we read through these, these are amazing, aren't they? The Proverbs, wow. When you really take time to listen to what Solomon was saying, this guy had some wisdom. And yet, Jesus said the Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus, wisdom incarnate. Verse 34. Verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation. Now we are progressing forward with Jesus, who we see having lived that tranquil, perfect, wonderful life, having died but not stayed dead. Wisdom in and of himself. And now we have this verse, righteousness exalts a nation. And it does. And you know what I'm looking forward to more than anything else, gang? It's not the next president who's going to bring hope and change. And I'm not slamming Barack Obama because you know what? That message of hope and change has been used by every presidential candidate in my entire lifetime. Every four years, that's the message. Hope and change. Hope and change. Hope and change. We'll bring you hope. We'll change things. We'll make things better. We're going to do it right this time. Really? Well, it's not working out so well in our country. J. Vernon McGee says, The pathway of history is strewn with the wrecks, the debris, the ruin of nations that didn't follow this principle. What principle? Righteousness exalts a nation. America. Do you want to be great again? Righteousness exalts a nation. Capitalism exalts a nation? No. It's not what it says. Socialism. No. It's not what it says. Communism? No. Republicanism? How about democratism? We don't need another ism. Because that's not going to exalt the nation. Righteousness. We need righteousness. And you know the world has never known a nation purely ruled by righteousness? But it will. It's going to when He comes. And things are not going to be really right until He comes. Verse 35, Here He comes. The King's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely. But His anger is toward him who acts shamefully. Which king is that? King Jesus. I don't want to hear messages of hope and change from the mouths of men anymore. I just want Jesus. I just want His righteousness. I am longing to hear my king say these few simple words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I hope the rapture comes 
Saturday night. Because I will party all eternity long. (laughs) I hope he comes tonight. And if not tonight, tomorrow. And I'll be longing for him the next day. And I'll be looking forward to him the next day. And I'm never disappointed when he doesn't come because I'm just too excited that he's still coming. (laughs) But it's righteousness that he brings. Jesus Christ, he's the solution. It's righteousness that exalts a nation. And it's truly the King's favor that we seek. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Your Word is so pure and so true and catches us all right where we are. You deal with us as a father deals with his children. Lord, we even feel, even in Bible study, sometimes the hand of discipline realigning us, redirecting us, reorganizing our thoughts. And Father, pulling us back to the thing that truly matters, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. The declaration of His righteousness. Living like Him and for Him in all that we do. And Jesus, that's our desire. It's what we pray tonight. Make us more Christ-like in every aspect of our lives. For Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.